this podcast is brought to you by Marant. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. I'm Carla Bene and I lead the employment law team at Morant in Jersey. I'm joined today by my colleague Katie Phillips and Laurie Child. We're going to be talking about the impact of COVID-19 on employment processes, particularly collective consultation. In March this year, the Government of Jersey announced the first phase of its co-funded payroll scheme, a short-term emergency measure to protect the most vulnerable employers and employees in the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic in Jersey. Further measures have been implemented to support and protect businesses and to save as many islanders' jobs as possible. However, the current scheme is expected to come to an end next month in August 2020, and with the end in sight, many employers are now being forced to confront the reality of the impact that COVID-19 has had on their business and think strategically about workforce restructures and reductions. These processes are likely to require collective discussions with affected staff, both those at risk of going and those staying behind. In this podcast, we'll be looking at the key issues to have in mind when contemplating large-scale workforce changes and discussing some of the challenges employers may face in complying with their obligations, particularly while the COVID-19 crisis remains ongoing. Most employers are currently in the planning stages of their post-COVID recovery plans and may not yet be settled on whether redundancies will occur. But at what point should employers start to have in mind their collective consultation obligations? The primary consideration will be the trigger for a collective consultation. That may well be earlier than many businesses assume. The legal test is a way of proposing to dismiss 12 or more employees over a 30-day period. And that's a rolling 30 days, so it needs to be monitored if you're carrying out a programme of redundancies. And proposing to dismiss is also a bit unclear because it's not specifically defined and I think could well include a scenario in which you know you have a definite plan to offer suitable alternative employment. Because the thing there is that of course the employees may refuse such an offer, in which case they're still redundant, so will therefore need to be counted towards the cap. And the significance of the trigger is that it obviously precedes any consultation period as we're going to look at, which obviously means that fail to spot it and you may not have allowed yourself enough time to undertake a proper consultation. So it's important to start thinking about things as early on in the process as you can. Are there any other key actions to have in mind at that early stage? Um, as Laurie has touched on, I think obviously where the collective consultation trigger is met, employers are obliged to notify the Social Security Minister about those proposed um, redundancies. In terms of the timescale in which to do this, it must be at least 30 days before the first dismissal. So 30 days is really the sort of time period for employers to ingrain in their mind. The purpose really of that notification is to enable states departments and related agencies to make early contact with employees who are facing redundancy. Uh, this is really so that assistance and advice can be offered uh, relating to job seeking, social security contributions and uh, any benefits. Uh, with regard to the forms that an employer would need to complete, these are available online on the Government of Jersey website, as well as on the JACS website. As with the consultation duty itself, there is a special circumstances defence which we will explore during this podcast. So if a business has determined that redundancies might be necessary and has notified the relevant authorities, are there any other steps that it needs to take before embarking on the consultation itself? Yes, yeah, so another key step is who you're going to be consulting with, and almost always that will be the representatives of the affected employees rather than the employees themselves. And in the law, the appropriate representatives can either be representatives of a local uh, or recognised 
trade union, um, or more commonly, it will be elected representatives. And unless you have a standing body as an employer of staff in a sort of consultation forum that deals with matters on a regular basis, you're likely instead to have to run a short, fair election process in which representatives are chosen by the affected employees in a ballot system. And even in present climate, the employer has the obligation to run that process and to act reasonably. Yeah, I think uh, particular matters requiring forethought are going to be the mechanics of the election, how it's going to work, whether it will be by email or perhaps at least in part uh, paper-based may obviously be challenging when people are still working remotely, but also the classes of representatives that will be required to make sure that the workforce or the affected part of the workforce is fully represented. And what will happen if insufficient votes are cast to produce a clear winner, or more likely where insufficient numbers of uh, employees have put themselves forward to be a representative. So it's fair to say there's nothing wrong with having a single candidate per staff group but the employer's got to be careful not to unreasonably exclude certain employees or be seen to rig the outcome. And I think that's even if the desire is to crack on and move to the consultation phase. Employer shouldn't be in a situation where it's failed to properly set up its elected representative group. As you say, particularly in the current climate, there could be a desire to crack on with the consultation as soon as possible and to deliver an outcome as soon as possible to provide certainty for staff, but it is important to make sure that that isn't rushed through. So as the business prepares to commence its consultation with the appointed representatives, what should it have in mind? So an, an employer really needs to start consulting with um, elected representatives of the affected employees at least 30 days before any notice of redundancy takes effect. And in terms of the definition of an affected employee, it is any employee who has been affected by the proposed redundancies or by measures in connection with these redundancies. So in terms of what an employer needs to do during the 30 days, there are um, specific and prescribed matters which the employer must consult about. These could include avoiding or reducing the number of dismissals and mitigating the consequences. Um, but also other factors will include disclosing the reasons for the proposals, the, num the total numbers affected and the proposed method of selection. Uh, these matters are not necessarily straightforward and a business should scrutinise carefully what it will disclose and when. Consultation generally must be with a view to reaching agreement. Collective consultation needs to be more than simply informing the employees. And it's unlikely to be fair from a dismissal perspective not to have a further period of individual consultation. So what's the scenario where it's not possible for an employer to undertake a 30-day period of consultation? In such circumstances, employers might be absolved from full compliance with their collective consultation obligations. In that case, they may be able to draw upon the special circumstances defence. However, that defence is undefined and it may well arise in the present circumstances, but employers should be careful not to rely too readily on the defence without examining whether their circumstances are truly exceptional. As I say, there is currently very limited guidance on, on what will be considered special circumstances, so it is always advisable for employers to comply with their collective consultation obligations to the fullest extent possible in order to avoid potential sanctions for non-compliance. It's a really interesting question, isn't it, of what impact these special circumstances defence might have. How does that fit with potential liability for an employer to 
collectively consult either at all or in accordance with the requirements of the law? Well, the sanctions for breach of the collective consultation obligations are discreet in a way because they stand separately from more uh, substantial awards for things like unfair dismissal, but they are costly. It consists really of a protective award, as it's called, of up to nine weeks pay for each employee. So again, when, when there's a programme of redundancies going on, you can see that that could well add up to a significant combined sum. And awards can be made for you know, different aspects of what we've been talking about, whether that's the duty to consult for 30 days on those prescribed matters that Katie mentioned, or the duty to elect appropriate representatives, as I was talking about uh, before. And it's also relevant, I think, that it's the employer's duty to make out the special circumstances defence if it's going to try and rely on it in order to evade financial liability. That will mean that it has to show that there were sufficiently exceptional circumstances that warrant the defence and also that the employer nonetheless took all such steps that it reasonably could to comply. So I think overall this adds up to quite a significant financial liability on top of the statutory and enhanced redundancy payments that will be required. And also when you're budgeting for uh, unfair dismissal awards and other things that could arise from a process like this. So we can see really clearly that COVID-19 is going to have an impact both practically on any collective process, how we might go about appointing representatives, how we will host consultation during perhaps working from home or on reduced uh, workforces in the office. But also, as you say, it feeds into the question of potential liability, and that is one of the key risks to employers in respect of their, their financial costs to them. There's also, of course, the liabilities of just the process itself and how that process is perceived. It's so important in these aspects to have careful and thoughtful advanced planning of large-scale exercises. We live in an age when employees are very quick to share their views and experiences with their friends and family and colleagues on social media and the like. And therefore, internal processes like these do often come under much greater scrutiny. Thank you both, Laurie and Katie, for your input today. If anyone listening has any questions, then please do get in touch with any one of us via email or give us a call. Thank you all for joining us and have a great day. Thank you for listening. For more information, please get in touch with your usual Morant contact or visit morant.com.